0: Hello, I'm Steve Pallas, and welcome to this episode of the Doing Sports Differently podcast. This podcast has been made possible through our partnership with Vic Health and we thank them for the opportunity to share the stories and successes of sports clubs who are doing sport differently. Each week we bring an interview with a club who is doing sport differently but today we're going to take a slightly different perspective And I'm really pleased to share my interview with Professor Rochelle Imey, Director of Sport and Recreational Spatial, a collective venture between Federation University and Victoria University. Rochelle has been researching sports participation for over a decade, and she will share what is actually happening with sports participation, how sport and clubs need to evolve, and what could happen if they don't. In short, Rochelle will share what sports clubs need to do differently to succeed into the future. I love the discussion with Rochelle because she doesn't sugarcoat her thoughts, which are so relevant and relatable to every sports club in Australia. After the interview, I will share my key takeaways from the discussion and what it all all means for clubs. But right now, let's get straight into my interview with Dr Rochelle Imey.
1: Director of Sport and Recreation Spatial, which investigates community level sport participation and recreation and facilities and health. And it all started with the VicHealth Fellowship Um, and we're now funded by VicHealth and State Government, SRV and work closely with VicSport. And for the past 10 years, we've been working with now 12 major sports in Victoria. And we analyze each year, all of their registered club participants from every club in Victoria. And that's around a million sport participation records each year that we analyze. And then that helps inform strategies and and policy developments um, for
0: change Uh, and there's a thousand different angles we could tackle that 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 research hence me losing four hours of my my time which I I thought was great great use of my time but the area I want to look at is well a couple of areas one is retention and I was staggered to learn that the retention figures. And so you've done some, some um, cutting and dicing of the data about the number of participants that, that are participating in four year blocks. And so what were the, the results that came out of that and the, the retention rates in the different age groups?
1: Yeah, well, basically, you know, sport policy is always focused on increasing numbers. So NSO yes. and SSAs have always focused on increasing numbers, and we hear that through the media and, and we see that in terms of their annual reports. But what we did is we investigated those people that continue to play those, those sports over time, and around 30% sort of drop out. Um, and it is high, a lot higher amongst adolescents, the dropout in sport, uh, particularly for females around that 15 to 19-year age group. So what we're trying to do is ask the sector to look at retention um, of participants rather than just getting newbies in and replacing those that drop out.
0: So what was the give or take as as, as a broad figure retention rate for year on year over the over a four-year period how how many people are staying on for that four-year period?
1: around 70% sort of stay on around 30% uh, drop out for memory but i'd have to go back and look unfortunately i look at um many different stats and numbers every day and it's really hard to keep my head around all of them
0: yeah and and oh, well actually i thought it was actually the other way i'll have to go back and check but i didn't i didn't actually take the notes i thought it was 30% that stay for the four years and 70
1: Oh 70% the four yes yeah, sorry each, each annual year around 30% of people drop out each year. Um, and that would have been that there was 70% and 30% retained over that four year period.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, and, and for me as a, I mean, I've been in club life all my, all my life and I, I work in clubs and I talk to clubs every day. I would have thought that intuitively that that figure was a lot higher than 30%. and, So I think that creates that compelling reason uh, to look at at the way the clubs are operating and saying, you know, only 30% of people are enjoying the experience enough to stay for four years. And when you look at it, that means 70% are not staying for four years in the life cycle of a club. And, And you go, well, there's something that's fundamentally wrong with, the way the clubs are offering themselves to the community or what community wants from clubs.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you're a business and you're losing that many clients annually hmm. or over four, four years, wouldn't you want to try and understand why? So that's what we're doing as a research team, working with a range of sports and understanding why people want to play sport by age and by gender um, and why they drop out. And it's really interesting because we can feed that information and that knowledge back into industry so that they can modify uh, maybe their products or the culture of the club or what they're offering to try and retain people. And it might be retaining people within the same sport but in a different form of the sport. It might be about those social recreation, non, non-competitive non um, sort of products of the game.
0: So why were why are so many people... Um, why are there so many people leaving our club so regularly? What did the research find?
1: There's a lot of different reasons. Some of them is based on the individual, so their skill level. So as you go up in your age groups, you might have, you know, three under 10 teams, two under 12 teams and one under 14 team. So if you don't make that under 14 team cut, you know, there is no option for you or you're on the bench uh, and it's not fun sitting on the bench all the time. There's also too social support. So if friends are moving away from sport and during adolescence getting jobs or going to parties and having boyfriends and girlfriends and your mates aren't involved anymore, they they often drop out. But it's also too, um, the competitive model suits those that are very good at that sport and like the competitive model. Um, now social sport is not Saying it's not competitive, we still try and get the ball through the sticks. That's the, that's the nature of the game, but it's less structured, so it's not so much focused on. There's no fixture, there's no necessarily um, finals. There might be relaxation of uniforms. There's no training twice a week. You basically just rock up and play.
0: So, when you looked at the motivations, both uh, both of adults and of um, of adolescents, fun and enjoyment was the number one scenario by by quite a significant way when you compare it to the competitive side yeah. of it yeah. so yeah. if we if we drill down into this concept of fun because you know I, I think fun is a bit of a throwaway word in one regard because it means to me it means richmond winning premierships but to <laughs> others it, it means a whole lot of other other things so what what did the research find Kind of find from a what is fun from an adult point of view and then an, an yeah. adolescent point of view.
1: Well, from the, for the adult's point of view, the majority of the reasons why people play is for their, their enjoyment. I mean, you don't play to not enjoy it. I mean, there's other ways you can be physically active, you know, household chores are gardening, but they're not always fun. So it's it's a choice. So we do it, but we want to have fun doing it. But it's to be with others and it's the social reasons for adults. So, for example, I still play tennis. Um, I don't necessarily have to play with my friends, but I just want to be with people sort of similar age. And we're just out there to have, to have fun um, and, you know, have a conversation. And and maybe a a beer afterwards, but for the adolescents, they're more connected to the actual friendship group. So they want to play with their mates. And and, and I've seen that through my own boys who, who now are 14, but especially during COVID when they could get back training footy, but they couldn't play. It was about them connecting with their mates. I mean, my boys were even excited to get back to school (laughs) because they wanted to be with their friends. So sport's a great opportunity to be with their friends and to play and have fun. Um, And for adults, it's it's that social reason as well. Now, what you're right about the concept of fun. Some people, fun is a focus on winning, but the far majority it's not. It's not about the medals and trophies. You know, why do we give out five best on day games awards? The kids – no, it's irrelevant. That's not what they play. Um, the competitive model is great, but it suits just a very few. So some are super competitive uh, and want to want to train a lot and want to progress in their actual athletic career. But the far majority just want to get out and play and have fun and not be so focused on winning.
0: So if we take that right back to the start of the year, when we look at what we actually do, and let's just focus on junior sport for a moment. And, and like junior sport – between the ages of, I think it was five and 15, your research told me has 53% of all sports participants. So it's a big whack of of the community.
1: We're only catering for a 10 year age group in sport.
0: Yeah, but, but what we're doing, they want, what they want is fun, social connectiveness. There's a small group that want to be the best of the best. But what we do for the whole lot of them is we bring them in and we grade them. So we potentially separate them from their mates and make them play according to skill level, which which is what we're finding isn't what's driving them to be to be the majority of them to be yeah. participating in clubs.
1: And that that's where it's actually a difficult one. It's sort of a double-edged sword because to actually have fun, you you actually need to have a similar level of competency. So if you're yeah. really good at tennis and I'm crap, we're not going to have fun. Uh, and that's where that's where matching competency is important for enjoyment. Um, But then the flip side is that kids and adolescents want to play with their mates, but that skill divide might be really quite large. So that's often where we can have the competitive model, but also perhaps um, a more flexible, social, recreation-based model for friends.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, welcome to those that are watching us live on on online. Gary, very welcome back to you, uh, president of the Knox Tennis Club, one of our uh, most passionate followers. Welcome to you, and and uh, the constant changing of tennis club committee people is one of the reasons why professional tennis coaches have people problems, communication problems, personality clashes that eventually leads to instability coaching development and, and junior teams. And it's interesting, Gary, that you raise coaches because in both the, the motivations um, Rochelle, for what is fun for um, adolescents and adults was that, that need or want to be continually improving, not necessarily to be the best player, but I just want to improve my skill week on week. So coaches are really important
1: absolutely and and particularly for adolescent girls what we found is they wanted a friendly coach so they didn't want someone yelling and screaming at them um and so they just want to be feel included to to have fun to improve and so they want that coach to reflect what what they want out of sport
0: yeah and I think even a professional sporting level we're seeing that evolution change from fire and brimstone coaches to you know if we look at a couple of the reigning premiers in 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 the. In the footballs, you know, Richmond built it off the back of connectivity between coaches and players. And I read a stat with Craig Bellamy, the coach of Melbourne Storm, that that he'd been to something like over 150 weddings of his players. So that, that shows that incredible connectiveness between coach and player
1: absolutely. And that's the power of sport. It brings individuals together for stronger communities. And it's all about social connectedness. We've done a survey during, during COVID and, you know, it was all about connecting with others. And that's something that we've had to we've really miss this year because we haven't been able to do that. But it's really been the core of sport. Um, you know, forever is about getting together with others and having fun. And, you know, talking about tennis, I actually used to coach out at, at, at Croydon but um, and at Glen Waverley. And I remember I had a group of adolescent girls on a Friday night, my last lesson, and um, I was talking to the coach I worked for. I said, oh, look, you know, they're not really that great. And, you know, what am I doing wrong? And he said, well, no, no, you're doing fine because they are improving and they're having so much fun. They, what they want out of sport is different to what the other people want out of sport. And he goes, go chat to them. So I had a chat to them and they said, no, we're having a great time. We're here with a bunch of friends. We're getting some help and assistance and we are improving. You know, they were never going to be, you know, top 10, top 100, but neither of the far majority of us. And that's not what sport should be about at a community well-
0: And you take me back to just an episode we did a couple of weeks ago with in the Doing Sport Differently um, program, which is we're really proud to be partnered with Vic Health to bring these stories. But it was the the Point Lonsdale Tennis Club, and there was their Tennis for Teens program. They had a pool of money that they could use, and the kids could decide whatever it is they wanted to do with it as part of this program. They bought a table tennis table. They didn't, you know, a different sport.
1: Oh, absolutely. But I, my boys play competitive tennis. Uh, one of my sons in a Tennis Australia uh, squad, so he catches the train down now from Ballarat by himself on, on a Tuesday. But most of the tournaments, that they're long days. You know, you're there for 12 hours a day and all the kids are lined up playing table tennis because it's just another way that they can connect. So they might be rivals on court and, you know, really super competitive and taking it seriously. And then that same two players are having fun playing table tennis. So it's about them... Because tennis is a very individualised sport, so they're not playing with their mates. It's just an individual against another competitor. But they're a great bunch of friends off court, and they, their friendship is is developed through the table tennis table.
0: Yeah, and and your concept of of asking people why are they leaving, what do you want? Uh, that was the the point. Lonsdale uh, Tennis for Teens was run by two uh, 50, senior gentlemen, fifty plus, and. And I love the courage that they had to say to these young kids, 30, 40, 15-year-olds, what do you want to do? What do you, what do you, what do you want to turn this club into?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I often say this, that, you know, clubs are run often by pale, male and stale, but, um, you know, o- older generations and older generations that were often very good at the sport and like the competitive model. But how do we as, as adults and older adults know what the next generation of players want? You know, society has changed so much and we shouldn't presume um, what sport should look like for them. We should just ask them.
0: Yeah, unquestionably. So that's what you've been doing. So if we've got a, a, an identified problem, and I think it's clear when you look at stats now, that if 70% of people are not staying for more than, you know, involved in your club for a four-year period, then that probably says that there's there's something that needs to be improving. So what is it that that you're seeing or what can clubs be doing to better cater for uh, their communities.
1: I think it's about having other social sport opportunities. So that means not as big a commitment for training or maybe even no training. You just rock up. It's about not having to commit to a team. It's here's a spreadsheet of players and we work out who's playing on what day of who's rocked up. Flexibility of memberships. I mean, memberships, you know, lock in for a whole year. Well, I don't want to commit to a whole year. I don't know if I like your sport yet. I just want to pay each week when I when I, when I I come along. Uniforms. Why do we need tight lycra? I'm not going to play a sport with tight lycra and a skirt. Why can't I Play in a, a t-shirt and some shorts. Why do I need to buy your uh, association apparel to play? That I just want to rock up, play the general nature of the game, and have fun with some like-minded people. But the trouble with sport, though, too, is, is you know, the capacity of the volunteers to deliver another parallel program. I mean, their their goal is to deliver the competitive model of sport. There's nothing wrong with that. That that's fine. But now we're asking clubs to deliver something else, which the society might like. Um, But, you know, we can't just rely on the same amount of volunteers. So, I mean, my question is, is it clubs role to develop those social sports and to deliver those social sports programs? Is it perhaps local government? Is it healthcare providers or health insurance companies? Or is it a collaboration and a partnership approach? Because the volunteer nature of sport struggles for volunteers and capacity as it is to deliver their traditional model. Who should run social sport? And there
0: was a really interesting question that where almost we left our first phone call and and I've been thinking about that for a week and and I'll pick up your point there that says the goal or the purpose of um the community clubs is to is to play competitive sport because I went back and had a look at a whole range of clubs that we did strategic plans for. So we we had the, the club rules for. And I went back and had a look at the club rules and it wasn't sometimes it said specifically play in this competitive competition, but inevitably it said grow and promote the sport of in our community. And yes,
1: how, how do they do that when when their governance structure is to to support their members? So even too, the, the governance structure of a state sporting association or national sporting association is to support their members. So if people are playing social sport and aren't actually members, it's not, the, the structure is not, not right to actually support them because the state sporting association is there to support its members, not those other social players who might not be members. So perhaps the membership model needs to change
0: yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? it? It opens up a whole lot of a whole lot of structures, but we do look at at a number of sports that that do have this come and play when you want type. You know we talked about bowls um and the the development of their barefoot bowls, night hour bowls. Um, but golf has got a come and play type um, and, and, you know public golf courses or public access come and play when you want. um. <laughs> Is too, thinking about it differently
1: oh absolutely but also too we're, we're not capturing information of these participants so when sports trying to go to government and get support for infrastructure or to say the value of sport in terms of physical mental and social health we're missing a big part of the pie because we're only counting registered players yes. now I used pre-COVID I used to play golf once or twice a year now I'm playing twice a week but I'm not signing up for a yearly membership because I just don't know what's going to happen. I'm never going to play the flexible options of 18 holes. Sorry, I'm never going to play competition golf. But yeah. I rock up on a on an afternoon with my sons and we play. And we put our names down because we have to during COVID and pre-COVID we don't. And I pay my 15 bucks for, for nine holes, which is a bargain because my boys are members. Um, but... I'm not actually registered with Golf Victoria. Um, If you and I go and have a hit of tennis every week, um, you know, we could play weekly um, down a local club and just pay our our court hire, but we're not necessarily registered um, with that sport. And that's where I think we need to try and improve the capture of data on social sort of sport um, as well as the, the membership data that we're currently reporting on
0: well, and and uh, pickleball is a great example of a social sport that is increasing with uh, popularity, which is it, unquestionably it is. and and pickleball is a sport I hadn't even heard of uh, six months ago and and staggered at how fast it is it is growing. but if i if I go back to a um, I would like to explore this, whose role is it? because i I do fundamentally think it is the role of clubs, but uh, I, but I also, understand that the extreme stress that the volunteer structure is under at the moment. And I think that's an area that needs to change as well. But if I go back to another guest that we had, which was uh, Chris Wall from the Frankston Stingrays Hockey Club, they were a pure men's, I think they had a Wednesday kind of semi-social competitive competitive team. And then they had the Saturday afternoon really competitive team. A couple of years ago, the club then introduced uh, Hockey Hockey Australia, Hockey Victoria's J-ball format, so introducing the sport. And I want to come to your question about how do people that haven't started the sport, how do they enter a sport? So they had the J-ball, then they had the Hockey sixes, I think it was, and then they, and they did that for a couple of years and now that's the foundation of their pyramid. That's the strength by which they build um, their club from and – And I think that was a great model of of a club introducing the social side of it and then building pathways into competitive but also back out of competitive.
1: Absolutely. That cycle effect of transitioning maybe within that same sport but into different opportunities. I think, you know, good clubs that have good governance uh, and a good culture uh, and a good amount of volunteers can can thrive in that space. It's those that maybe have, you know... a traditional mindset that, no, we don't do social sport and, and, and so forth, but it's how to try and encourage clubs to do it, but it's how to support them to do that and how do we support training and educating of volunteers and, and whose role is that? So, um, yeah, I, I don't disagree that it's not necessarily the role of the clubs, but how do we support the clubs um to and in those volunteers or is it that um, you know private commercial organizations and it's a partnership approach with them as well I mean we see that a lot of commercial uh, sport and active recreations are are thriving because um, they are professional in their approach you know I I do Pilates and go to the gym Um, you know Pilates with a mask on is not that much fun at the moment but you know yes it is more expensive than maybe a, a club membership, but you've got that professional services that that come with that. So I think we just need to look at the system as a whole and then look at where that support needs to be. Because we've got, like you said, we've got the social programs. There's been a lot of development with sports and with funding from VicHealth, et cetera, like your J-Ball. Yeah. They're developed. Uh, so those products are in place and there's been marketing of that um, and good development. But you can't have the same volunteers running Saturday sport and then the no. weekly training of that and these social programs as well.
0: yeah, and and in answer to your question, one of the one of the obvious answers to your question, who helps the volunteers? That's the sole purpose of sports community is to is to help clubs and and I guess our signature kind of training is how to create that culture of volunteering, how to how to go from, where the committee does all the work to where everyone in the community, not just the club, but the community is contributing to the goals of the club. And and I think the community will embrace clubs more if the goals of the club are diverse, diversified away from the competitive but to more to what the traditional was to grow and promote the sport of within the community of. that will Absolutely.
1: Be- and that's the messaging and the communication as well. So we've got some clubs and leagues, you know, here in Ballarat of different different sporting codes. And all we hear about is the men's A-grade team and their premiership or them winning and so forth. So if that's only about the communication about uh, the men's A-grade team winning or losing and by what margin and who's playing this week and so forth, well, then that's detracted from what the core values of that club should be and what the community would like.
0: And but yet, when we look at the analytics of community sports clubs and we look at their social media posts and we look at their websites and their stories and such, the scores and the the match reports are very low ranking as a terms of interest within the community of even that club community. It's all the stories, it's the interaction, it's the fun, it's the it's the what happens,
1: yeah on and off the field basically and that's where social media can can really help but that's where we need the younger generation involved and getting (laughs) them to take on some of those roles because they they get it and they can do it so easily and they love sharing photos oh my gosh how much they share photos of themselves and video clips so we need them to drive that that social media connection with with communities because they they do it so well second nature to them
0: well, and and I've said this often because uh, this comes up quite regularly in the the doing sport differently live streams. But you should see the fear on the president's face when you say you should hand over the social media to the sixteen year olds. But it's you're you're unquestionably right because a they're using the platforms more than anyone else, and b they know what their audience wants and and it, and it's but it's opening up their club to a whole new audience that that we we traditionally haven't got, but. I want to come to this point of if we open up to a whole new audience, that means we're not just introducing people to our game at you know that entry level, the Oz kick level, the T20 blast, what it net go. We're introducing them to our game at all ages now. And we're not really well set up for that, are we, as sports to bring people Absolutely. in? Absolutely,
1: because you need skill and competency to actually have fun. and So generally that's that's developed in the fundamental motor skills and development and sport-specific skills when people are young. But we need to consider how people can enter sport at all ages. And that's where these social programs can, can really help because it's not about... Winning—it's about coming and having a try. But also, two question is, how do we how do we promote and how do people join a club? So I've I've joined many clubs across different states across my lifespan in a, in a few sports and with my children now. And even though I'm, I'm good at sport, my family's good at sport, um, and you know we're, we're extroverted people. I still haven't joined a club unless I've known someone at that club. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's that social connectedness again. So how does someone that has never played a sport, their family's not really into sport, they're not going to just find a website and a number and just call it or rock up and knock the door and say, Here I am, know nothing about what you are. Don't know if I'm going to enjoy it. Don't know if I'm going to be here. I'm not going to be in your A-grade team. I'm not going to win your medal. Uh, What have you got for me? I mean, it's just not going to happen. So I think we need to look at snowballing effect and how do we increase our reach in the community through connecting through our current participants.
0: So one of the things with researchers is they 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 look back at data. So you've 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 done ten years looking back, you know, living the life but, you know, you've got the benefit of looking at 10 years of data. If I can five years from now or even 10 years from now, what do clubs look like, do you think?
1: I'd like to think they're they're thriving social community hubs um, and more diverse. So so more diversity in terms of ages, more diversity in terms of you know culturally diverse, more opportunities for people with a disability, more inclusive um, of our communities because at the moment they they cater for for a, you know a, a very narrow part of our community. I'd like them to be more inclusive and more of a community hub.
0: Do you think if clubs don't do that they'll be around in 10 years? No. No, me neither. No, me neither. I I I can't see how clubs will survive unless they start to embrace what the community wants and more yeah. importantly needs and
1: and it's also, too, because the next generation of kids, un- unfortunately, they don't have the fundamental motor skills and development, physical literacy and competency to play competitive sport necessarily. So th- then if they're not playing competitive sport, and, and you can't tell kids to, to go for a ride around the block, it's good for your health. I mean, that's just going to tell you to get stuff. So we've got to find something that's enjoyable for them to be active in. And I think that's where social sport can play a really large role for those uh, unfortunately, that don't have really good fundamental motor skills. And there's a lot of adolescents and, and adults that, that don't. So that's where social sport can play um, a big role.
0: That's right. And there's, there are a lot of sports that are. I mean, we've spoken a little bit about bowls today, but the the, the indoor ball sports, the netballs, the badmintons, the yep. um, or predominantly indoor, um, yep. basketball, yeah. squash, um Indoor cricket, futsal, in, out, play, short season. If we're going to do a season, there might be rotating times, um, etc. There's lots of examples of it working now and yep. forever. Um, and and that's I would suggest that's the reason that say sports like basketball have been such big participation numbers, because it's that catering exactly to what the community, oh, wants.
1: but they're in at an hour, so an hour is a lot what people want to commit so it's an hour of the gym it's an hour of pilates or 45 minutes so it's in out in an hour um that a lot of those indoor sports or an hour and a half um do do really well and that's that's so we've got to think about you know the there's not just a structure of sport but the, the timing of sport i mean how long does your cricket match go for
0: yeah well yes well it depends on who you're talking to but uh yeah you know typically midday to six is uh is, or one o'clock to six and that's a big whack of time if, uh, in, in a people's person's life but in my life I couldn't do that anymore and I've played all my life because I work Saturdays with clubs yep. Yep. Um, so that means I can't play cricket so um yeah an hour is a long time in a person's life half an hour of your time is um, has probably changed many clubs for the next 10 years so Rochelle thank you so much for sharing your knowledge sharing your experience uh I think, I think we would uh, be, be doing everyone a, a great service if you would uh, come back after Christmas and keep sharing your knowledge with us and we'll take keep taking it out to clubs and uh, just try and make sure that as many clubs as we can in 10 years' time are, are still around and are great community hubs for their for their communities. So great.
1: Thanks thank very much. Thank
0: you so much for, for sharing your knowledge today.
1: All right. Thanks. Pleasure.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Professor Rochelle Imi as much as I did. I felt really lucky we had the opportunity to talk and some really compelling points came out. Firstly, and for me, most importantly, the evidence is saying that unless our clubs evolve to become thriving community hubs, more inclusive, creating more participation options, then many of our clubs will not be around in 10 years. The foundation for this position is not just Michelle's opinion, but research has been undertaken over a decade using the participation data of 12 major sports codes. Another area that, that really shocked me as an experienced sports administrator was I was staggered to learn that of those joining a sports club, only 30% would stay involved at the club for four years. That means 70% of participants that started only come back for one, two or three years. That means categorically that they're not getting the experience, they're not getting out of clubs what they want. When the research looked at the motivation for adults and why they play sport, the number one rated reason was for fun and enjoyment, the second, social reasons the third physical fitness, and then fourth was performance and competition. For adolescents, it was very similar. Fun and enjoyment was number one, then physical health and fitness, then came competition. So unpacking, what does fun mean? For adults, the number one characteristic for fun was socializing. Importantly, number two was being challenged to improve their ability at the sport. So regardless of someone, whether someone was a competitor, a social competitor, a social participant, everybody rated highly the desire to improve their ability when talking about fun. Playing with friends, keeping fit and winning came lower down compared to socialising, Having a friendly coach was important, particularly for female competitors. From an adolescent's perspective, the number one rated item for fun was actually being challenged to improve. So wanting to learn and develop their skills in the sport was the number one thing that made it fun. That sense of achievement, playing with friends, trying your best, playing together well as a team, having a friendly coach, but all the time developing their ability in the sport gave great pleasure. It was really interesting to understand that the way parents are behaving within clubs and the way they are supporting their children, it can have a material and adverse effect on the experience of the children. So we need to ensure that parents remain supportive and a lot less instructional. We need to really look at and understand that fun isn't for most people about competing and winning. It's about socialising, developing their skills and developing their interactions with other people. Enjoying the experience for some, it's about competition and winning, but they are a smaller minority compared to the majority whose needs are not currently being met by most of our competition-focused sports clubs. Another key learning for me out of the interview was that we have to stop thinking that the only option that our clubs provide is competitive sporting options. We must start to consider adding social and introductory programs of all ages. There are lots of examples today of how clubs and sports are really thriving because they are complementing their competitive options with social options. So sports like bowls with the introduction of barefoot bowls and night owl bowls and indoor sports like basketball and badminton and gymnastics and table tennis and volleyball that very much com- complement their competitive sports with introductory and participation formats had had fantastic results. This session is absolutely not about saying we don't want social, we don't want competitive options. It's about complementing those options so that we have social options. We have introductory options for all ages. We have formal and informal formats, flexible sporting formats that allow us to create a pathway into competition, but equally as important, back out of competitions into the social formats as people's needs and desires change. So I hope that the interview with Professor Rochelle Imey has been thought-provoking and really challenges you to think about what does your club offer in regards to participation, how can we bring people to the club, teach them our sport when they join at all ages and all levels, and create that pathway into and out of the competitive side. At the same time, while being fun, less competitive options, more inclusive, and creating a huge number of social opportunities, interactions, and connections. Why? Because this is what the community wants. Now, finally, for this podcast, I'd really like to thank our sports community members. It's only with your help and support that it is possible to produce all of the content that we do, all focused at making it easier for volunteers to run our sports clubs. So to our sports community members, I say thank you. If you're a club volunteer or if you help sports club volunteers or you know a sports club volunteer that needs help, please check out our website, www.sportscommunity.com.au. Join us on Facebook and YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn. Register for our newsletter on the website and that, that will give you access to heaps more information, not just about today's session, but about how we make it easier to be a club volunteer we'd love for you to become a member and help us to continue to make it easier for sports club volunteers so if you want to become a member just go to sportscommunity.com.au click on the membership tab and that will provide all the information i'm steve palace and until the next podcast episode thank you so much for being part of our sports community